Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Living History. Thank you for joining us once again, and thank you for the response to the episode since we've been back. We've just restarted after our big COVID-induced break, and it's great to be back and recording great history episodes. Uh, so thank you very much for everyone who's tuned back in and for all the feedback you've been giving us about the episodes we've done lately. If you haven't checked out our recent episodes, please go back and have a look because there's some pretty good things we've done in the recent episodes. Um, also, don't forget, if you want to visit the battlefields and walk where this history occurred, you can now do that. Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours now has a full range of tours available for 2023, and it's a fantastic time. COVID is out of the way the battlefields are back open. Europe is open. Uh, the Rugby World Cup is coming up next year in 2023. So it's a great time to get over there and walk the ground on the battlefields. And we'd love you to join us. So visit our website, see our show notes for all the information about that, but come and join us on a tour. Speaking of tours, you've tuned in at a great time if you want to know about touring because it's currently the anniversary of the battles on the Somme, the huge range of battles that took place during the First World War. So I wanted to talk specifically about the Australian involvements in those battles. And joining me to do that is one of our most popular historians who leads tours for us on the battlefields of the Western Front. If you want to do this in real life, you can't do this with this lady and no one knows more about the battlefields than she does. It's Joe Hook joining us from the UK. Joe, thanks very much for being on Living History. Thank you for inviting me, Matt. It's um, great to be here. Very early in the morning for me in the UK here. Um, so, But it's good to join you and good to hear that people are going back out on the battlefield again. It's it's an exciting time, and we were just discussing before we started recording that you uh, are finally, after two years of having time off, you're finally back over there leading tours of the battlefields. It must be great to be walking the ground again. Yeah, it is. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to be out there um, sharing your knowledge, but also to see you know, all the other guys, you know, people that you'd regularly pass, say, on a motorway on the coach and just wave to, or you'd bump into into Ypres or down on the Somme. It's good to see everybody out and um, learning that and enjoying being actually back on the ground again, as opposed to sort of like reading about it in books or, or although they've been brilliant through the COVID period, watching, you know, all the different podcasts that have been up and running. Whilst we've all been stuck at home indoors, it's great to be back. It's really good. Well, I'm looking forward to getting back over there in September will be the first time I'll be back to the battlefields, walking the ground for the first time in two years. First time in three years, actually, because I haven't been since 2019. So it's going to be, uh, it's going to be fantastic. And, and what we're talking about today 
are two of those key Australian battlefields that we visit on the on the Western Front. We're going to do this in two episodes, so it's two special episodes of Australians on the Somme. So today we're going to talk about two. Well, we're going to start with the first of two really important 1916 battles, which is the Battle of Fromel. And the next week we're going to revisit this and do the Battle of Pozieres. But just these two names, Joe. When we mention Fromel and Pozieres, they just just surrounded in infamy, aren't they? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, both of them are interlinked in any way because Fromel was in support of the attack going on at the Somme, and for the certainly for the Australians, it's a, it's a, a really big thing because they've come over from Gallipoli, uh, come in via the port of Marseille, and from Gallipoli they've got their combat experience, fighting as a, a, as a, you know brigades, as a division, as divisions, as one and that corps. But the Western Front is a very different beast to Gallipoli. Um, so they're entering uh, the battlefield with huge amounts of armies. You've got the French, you've got the German, you've got the British Army, together with all the Commonwealth troops, and volumes and volumes of artillery fire. So certainly at Fromel, which is their first action, you know, they, they initially are fed into the uh, what is known as nursery trenches up and around Armentieres, not far from Fromel. But it's a totally different ball game for them than anything that they've experienced at Gallipoli. I've heard about the experiences that the soldiers had during this time. The you know the very steep learning curve that they had to they had to go through, even though they were all combat veterans from Gallipoli. Just as you said, the nature of the fighting in 1916 on the Western Front was just worlds apart from what they'd experienced at Gallipoli. Things like the use of hand grenades, the the close support of masses of artillery, many more machine guns, light machine guns. It was just a totally different world of fighting, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And I don't, I don't think it was uh, a learning curve just for the Australians. If you go through um, the history of the First World War, even for the British, we were still on that steep learning curve and certainly in 1916 I think we'd not quite reached the top of that learning curve yet so we were still making mistakes and then making them again um, and I think it's quite difficult to sort of like say well why did we keep making those mistakes you have to get your head around the bigger picture um, these mistakes are being made um, throughout really 1916 even into 1917 but to understand why they're being made, you have to realise that the commanders, the the high, the, the chain of command, or the high command, up right up right up to the very top, they're also on this learning curve. They're having to learn to fight with completely new industrialised warfare, and that doesn't happen overnight. Well, if we look at this time, we're talking July nineteen sixteen when these battles occurred, and the the Battle of the Somme began. On the 1st of July 1916, quite famously, that disastrous attack when the British advanced and suffered horrendous casualties. I think it was close to 60,000 men killed or wounded in one day's fighting, which is the one of the biggest disasters ever to befall the British Army. But the Australians hadn't been involved up until this point, and we now fast forward to the 19th of July 1916. Just explain to us why the Australians were even at this place called Fromel and what they were asked to do there. Well, the Australians um, at Fromel, they'd uh, come out of, so they'd, they'd been uh, initially fed into nursery trenches around Armentieres. And what is happening down on the Somme, down on the south, around the 19th 
of or just before the 19th of July, his intelligence gathering has told us that there is a certain division down south facing the British Army on their 12-mile front down on the Somme. Now, the intelligence has told us that actually that division, what we know, should be up at Fromel. And so the commander-in-chief, Sir Douglas Haig, sends out an order to one of his generals, a guy called Haking, and he says to him, I want you to arrange or plan a diversionary attack up at Fromel in order to usefully employ the Germans up there to stop them infiltrating down and reinforcing south. So both the Battle of Fromel and the battle going on at the Somme, both of them are interlinked. Um, now, Haking has under him, he has uh, the Australians, um, uh, 5th Australian Division under command of Mackay, um, who has gone through uh, Gallipoli, has gone through Egypt with the Australians, but also he has a British division. And so he plans for a limited, initially, um, the planning was for an, just a, an artillery demonstration up at Fromel. Um, and this plan widens to the use of artillery with infantry, attacking at Fromel, really just to keep the Germans or the, this German division up at Fromel and to stop them reinforcing south. And that's really why it happened. Um, the battle, exactly, almost exactly the same battle, had been fought over the same ground by the British in 1915, known as the Battle of Obez Ridge. Um, but Haking, again, puts in place this plan for the Australians and British to attack side by side. It's one of those things that we hear a lot about the Battle of Fromel is that it was a diversionary attack to hold Germans in this area north of the Somme. And sometimes it's been criticised as a, as a not a good plan and haking cops a fair share of criticism. But I've got to say that strategy is as old as warfare itself. If you have a main operation occurring somewhere on your line, in this case, the Battle of the Somme down in the, in the Somme region, you want to keep the enemy occupied in other parts of the line so they can't reinforce their, their comrades in that main part of the action. So the plan for Fromel was not a bad one. It, it certainly made sense that other local commanders in parts of the line would operate local attacks to hold the Germans in those positions. But I think where it went wrong was the, the execution was um, was pretty poorly carried out, wasn't it? Yeah, it, uh, extremely poorly carried out. Um, so there was a lot of prevarication from the very start of it about Haig being concerned, certainly about the artillery, both the British and Australian artillery. And again, um, some of the Australian gunners here had never actually fired a gun prior to Fromel. The lack of any kind of preparatory training, um, not just for the Australians, they were um, uh, fighting next to a British third line uh, division, um, the 61st division. Um, so any kind of preparatory um, training for these guys, I suppose when you compare that to um, Messines probably in 1917, was virtually non-existent. And so they were going to be rushed onto the battlefield um, to attack through this the, the ground. If you just look at the topography of Fromel, it's as flat as a pancake. Um, so any kind of prior preparation for the attack was almost non-existent. It, a lot went on at Fromel. There was a lot of men involved. It was a fairly major attack. Um, and so we could spend a long time talking about exactly what went on. But can you just give us an overview of, of exactly what happened when the Australians went in to attack on the 19th of July and the fighting that then continued into the 20th of July? 
Yeah, so basically the topography app from Elv is extremely flat. The water table is high. So instead of having those trenches that we're all familiar with, the Australians and the British built breastworks. So you're building a kind of trench above the ground. And one of the problems is with this is they have to have uh, exit, uh, that the infantry have to be able to exit from these particular trenches. Um, there was a preparatory bombardment prior to the attack, but really having these kind of preparatory bombardments really just alerts the enemies to what you're going to do. At some point, the artillery is going to stop and the infantry are going to attack. And that's exactly what happened. So the bombardment started um, on the 19th of July. The attack had been delayed. It was due to start, I think, two or three days earlier, but the date is set for the 19th of July with a preparatory bombardment about 11 o'clock in the morning due to continue throughout the day. And about 6 o'clock, 6.30 that evening, the British and the Australians will attack over ground that is as flat as a pancake. Now, what the bombardment is designed to do is to cut any German wire that is uh, in no man's land between the British or between the Australians and British and the Germans, but also to keep the German heads down. Overnight on the 19th, when um, uh, uh, troops had gone out to inspect the wire, in some places there were gaps, but in other places it had not even been touched. And so before the attack goes in, um, troops are reporting back that the wire is uncut and they've got to go across a piece of ground, as I said, as a flat as a pancake, which is also bisected by the Lays Brook. Now, this is an obstacle that the infantry have to overcome, and they have to overcome it on ground where the German army have almost got their own salient jutting into no man's land. This is a salient known as the Sugarloaf. And unless we destroy the German army sitting in this strongly fortified position, unless we destroy them, all we allow them to do is do exactly what they did do on the attack, which was enfilade the British troops as they're crossing no man's land, literally mowing them down like corn. Um, troops are getting cut up because the wire isn't crossed. And really, from the start of the attack, it proves a disaster. On the left-hand side of the, of the battlefield, the 53rd and 54th battalions from the 14th Brigade managed to get into German positions what had happened at Fromelso is when the German army had got there, they'd started to drink, uh, uh, um, dig trench positions, realised that the water table is too high, so had pulled back nearer to Fromel's village, the Obez Ridge, the high ground. And so those trench positions were abandoned. Now, when the 54th and 53rd battalions went through, unwittingly, they think that is the German frontline positions. And so they don't go any further forward. And this allows the German army to counterattack um, and virtually surround some of these guys. So that they, so by the end of that really 24 hour period, those battalions that have got forward are virtually fighting as small units on their own with no communication to their left and right in danger of becoming surrounded. And so you've got piecemeal um, attacks going in, trying to fend for themselves, and eventually it becomes so disjointed and so cha so chaotic that um, certainly I think it's one of the 
lieutenant colonel from either the 54th or 53rd, I can't think off the top of my head now, but they have to pull back. They have to pull back across the battlefield. And this they do within a 24-hour period. But the attack for the Australians is disastrous. It's a disastrous 24 hours that you can almost liken sort of percentage-wise to the 1st of July for the British. Some 5,333 troops will be killed, wounded or missing in the space of 24 hours. So in a nutshell, that is really what happens. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's just horrendous figures when you think of 5,500 men killed or wounded and captured as well. About 400 men were captured by the Germans. The, the battle was a disaster. Um we fast forward and we had the uh, the final chapter in it in the last decade or so has played out the discovery of the mass grave in Fromel. Just very quickly, tell us a little bit about that because the story of Fromel isn't complete without talking about the mass grave that was uncovered a decade or so ago. No, no it isn't. And it's a great story. It's not one of those stories that we sort of sort of when we talk about the 1st of July and we say, well, that was the end of the 1st of July and then the battle raged on. The Battle of Fromel's comes round full circle almost 100 years, and it's really the impetus of a guy called Lambis Engelsoff, uh, an Australian um, of Greek parentage, and he's fascinated by the attack at Fromel. Um, he does a huge amount of research into it, and through his research, he looks at the figures that are buried in these little cemeteries that are dotted around Fromel, and they just don't add up. And he thinks to himself, there must be more missing that there's something that a piece of this jigsaw that really doesn't add up and so he um, enlists some various other historians both Australian and British historians and together they come together and um, I think uh, they manage Lambeth manages to arrange some aerial photography of the land um, to take aerial photographs of the land in and around the village of Fromel's and sure enough once this um, aerial reconnaissance or photography comes back they see that just south of um, uh, Fromel's village in a place called Pheasant Wood that the ground is different. Um, now Lambis tries to get the Australian government involved in the Australian military and initially they're not really that interested so he continues doing his research I mean he's tenacious in the research he does and they're doing research using the archives of the Australian War Memorial, the Imperial War Museum, and also the Bundesung archive. And gradually, um, they're beginning to gather more and more evidence. So much so 
that um, the Australian government and the Australian military eventually do become involved and agree to a tender being put out. It's put out to Glasgow University for a non-invasive archaeological dig. And this happens, and immediately the dig goes into uh, motion. They start to turn up uh, kind of buttons and all different little artefacts. Um, meanwhile, back in Australia, the research is still going ahead full-blown. And one of the really major pieces of evidence that is found is found via the Bundes archive, and they find the order of a German officer, I think his name is von Braun, and the order sets out the burial, the mass burial, of both British, Australian and German troops. And this is almost like the, the key to um, unlocking what happened at Fromel afterwards, because all this evidence has drawn so much attention. I think Lambus has also used the involve of the media that it's arranged that they will do a major archaeological dig. A tender is sent out and it is awarded to Oxford University. And almost immediately, once they get out on the ground, they find this burial, uh, this mass burial. Now, um, there's a little bit of mythology around this. A lot of people will say to you, and even on the battlefield, well, Joe, didn't they just throw these men into pits? No, they didn't. These men were buried with as much dignity as the German army could afford the enemy at the time, so that, that officers would be buried together, uh, their personal effects would be ga gathered, there would be no looting of the dead, but it had to be done quickly, it had to be done efficiently. Um, the Germans obviously were burying their enemy and didn't have a lot of time in which to do so. But once the um, full archaeological survey uh, went in, um, immediately they were finding the remains of Australian and British troops. And the beauty of uh, doing this in the 20th century was then there was a whole big publicity campaign, and I can remember it. I don't think it drew so much impetus in the UK, but certainly in Australia, there was a, um, a media campaign asking anybody if they had relatives that were missing and killed at Fromel's to come forward with DNA. Now, it has to be a certain type of DNA that has to come from the female line, mitochondrial DNA, but people came forward. And because of this, because they would be able to match the present day 20th century DNA up with the DNA from the bones of these um, Australian troops, they were able to give them back their identity. Um, so much so that the Commonwealth War Graves Commission became involved and they said, well, actually, we're going to have to make a new cemetery. So in 2010, the Australians came back to Fromel's in order to pay their respects to these Australian and I think there was a couple of British troops who at last could have a place where their relatives could come back. At last, they'd got back their identity and were buried um, in a formal inauguration at Fromel's. And that's it really in a nutshell. All down to one man. Lambert that's pretty extraordinary. It's pretty great, isn't it? Lambus is a good bloke. He's been on the podcast before, and so go back and listen to that episode from a couple of years ago of Lambus talking about how they discovered the uh, the mass grave at Fromel. Just an extraordinary story, um, yeah. and it's wonderful. The the first new cemetery built by the Commonwealth War Graves since I believe the Second World War. So it's it's pretty extraordinary and a, yeah. a, a, just a wonderful place to visit. And let's talk about that, Joe, because you and I both love getting out and walking the ground. And Fromel is a pretty special place to do that. There's still lots of 
there's still lots of signs of the battle that you can find. You can walk in the footsteps of the Anzacs. And I just wanted to start by saying I, I find Fromella very it's an unusual place that it, it always feels a bit sad. It always feels a bit depressed. Even on a bright, sunny day, it always seems like a bit of a cold wind whips up from somewhere or it's just a, it's an odd place, isn't it? You do, I don't tend to get too emotive about these things, but you do really feel it from El that you're walking with the ghosts of the, of the Anzacs that were there. It's an extraordinary place, isn't it? Most definitely. Um, and um, when, we're, when we're on tour, you know as well as I do that from El and Bulcor, are really the middle of our tour when we're heading down from the Ypres Salient, um, which is a beautiful place, down onto the Somme and down towards Amiens. And I always call it the Slasherist Day because you go from Fromel to Bourcourt. And both of them, I think it's because um, they're not like Ypres. Ypres is popular. It's a beautiful um, town. Um, but there's a lot of commercialism up at Ypres. You, you begin to uh, wend your way down from Ypres, a very affluent town, and you cross into the French border, which is less affluent. And you even notice the change in architecture. And you come onto Fromel, and it is as flat as a pancake. It's flatter than eat. Um, and it's a kind of place which I prefer as a guide. I don't know if you're the same, Matt, but not too many groups go there. So generally, you can be going down, we go down there first thing in the morning, and you're the only coach on the battlefield, or you, the only uh, the guides with with your group on the battlefield, and I always try and follow in the footsteps of the Australians. So we come in via one of the most beautiful cemeteries, Le Trouade Post, and it was where Elliot Pompey Elliot, Fifteenth Brigade, uh, the well-known um, colourful character that's Pompey Elliot, had his brigade headquarters. Um, but the farm tracks that you can look at, um, we use a trench mapping system as well. They are still there. The Lays Brook, which proved a horrendous obstacle for the Australians, it is still there. Uh, the Digger Memorial, which you can walk to. You can walk from the Lays Brook to VC Corner Cemetery, the All-Australian Cemetery in France, down to the Digger Memorial. And these fields, they have gone back to being agricultural land. Um, but the actual land itself, Fermel's hasn't been built outwards. There's no commercialism there. So where we get to the digger is built on that German first line trench system. And you can just stand there and it does have an aura to it. It has this aura it, that's quite difficult to imagine. Um, and I use a lot of the words of the Anzac. So they're, they're um, you know, they're anecdotal stuff to try and explain the battle. Um, I don't know if you're like me, Matt. One of the things I find really difficult, you go to these beautiful French villages, generally in the spring and summertime, and every, the crops are starting to grow, and everything is very peaceful. And it, it's almost overly peaceful. It's such a complete contrast to what these Australians and British soldiers must have experienced during um, all their attacks. And it's a really strange feeling to be out on the battlefield. But yeah, Fromel, as opposed to I say Eep, which has is has become more and more commercial, and the and the town has grown outwards. Fromel hasn't, and the battlefield is still there. You can still feel it, um, and you can just still feel, um, you know, almost the atmosphere. It still holds a resonance down there of what what went on. I think. Well, it's not only that too, but the physical remains can be found as well. I, for, for whatever reason, I've found more relics from the fighting at Fromel than I think on just about any other battlefield. 
which is extraordinary considering there was really only, I, I know the Battle of Orbers Ridge went in there the year before, but in this particular part yeah. where the Australian Memorial is, there was only effectively 24 hours of fighting. And yet you never walk across the fields there without finding bullets and buttons and bits of uniform. And you can guarantee that if you walk from VC Corner Cemetery to the Australian Memorial Park, which is a distance of a few hundred metres, you will find in the ground relics from the fighting. It's it's, it's just an extraordinary place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, even after the fighting, um, we tend to sort of like focus on the actual attacks and what have you, but even after the fighting, there were still trenches there. Um, men settled back into what was a relatively quiet area of the Western Front in and around, I said, Amontiers, Bois, Grenier, down at Fromel. Even though there wasn't um, uh, a battle there, the, the 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 Western Front still had to be manned. So you would, after the battle had finished, you would fall back into just guarding your sector and you'd go through your daily routine every day with your daily hate, your artillery fire being fired by the Germans, we fire them back, and normal trench routine. Um, but you're you're quite correct. And, and the only thing I can think is why we still find a lot of stuff down there is really it's only us that visit there. You don't get, generally, you don't get that many British groups go down there. For the British, the main focus is down further south, down on the Somme and up at Eat. Um and in a strange way, I prefer that. I like being down there on my own with just my group. You, there's there's a, a sense of um, a peacefulness as opposed to Upper Eat, which is, I think, is a beautiful place. But really, you can't get that um, sense of being totally on your own with your group on what is kind of virgin battlefield Upper Eat. That sense you can get down at Fromelles, definitely. Well, it's a very special place, Joe. I can't wait to get back over there. You'll be over there much sooner than I will be, and I'm <laughs> I'm jealous of your uh, your opportunities to walk the ground. <laughs> but in September on my signature tour, I'll be back over there, and it's one of the highlights of any tour of the Western Front for Australians. It's a, it's a sombre but a really important place to visit. So, thank you very much for your time explaining us to us explaining it to us today. It's been uh, it's been a really great uh, great interview. It's been a pleasure and it's been nice to see you and I'm really looking forward to maybe our coaches crossing on the motorways in September. I'll give you a wave in any case. Wonderful, Joe. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, tune in again next week when I speak to Joe again about the Battle of Pozier. But in the meantime, Joe, thank you so much for joining us on Living History. It's been a pleasure and thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.